Whether you grew up in the city, country, or suburbs, most of us have deep emotions imprinted in our memories as to the place where we're from. In BT's neighborhood, we'll investigate two questions, who am I and whose am I? These questions, we hope, will point us in a more distinct direction of knowing how to live into the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. How can we love those around us, especially those who challenge or oppose us, if we don't even know who we are or how to express love for God, others, and ourselves? So take a walk with us, learn where to buy your groceries and where to find a good conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Roberts Wesleyan University in conjunction with the Office of Spiritual Life. We want to welcome you to the neighborhood. Well, welcome to BT's Neighborhood podcast at Roberts Wesleyan University. And uh, this afternoon, instead of... Pastor G, who normally uh, hosts this podcast, I have the privilege of co-hosting. My name is Dr. Rebecca Letterman. I serve as the director of the Intellectual and Spiritual Humility Institute at Roberts, and I'm sitting here with Professor Professor Tim Vandenberg, who is going to um, introduce our guest today. Yeah, thank you, Rebecca. So uh, I'm Tim Vandenberg. I teach English here, and I'd like to introduce. Reverend Mitchell C. Hescox, or just Mitch, as he said this morning in chapel. Um, He is the president of the Evangelical Environmental Network, or EEN for short, uh, which is a group of Christians interested in creation care, and it reaches over 4 million Christians around the world, mostly in the U.S., but also beyond our borders, who care about being good stewards of God's creation. And so we're just so happy to have Mitch here today. And I'll kick this off with a question for him. Mitch, you began your career in the oil and gas industry, and now you are trying to eliminate fossil fuels from our energy economy. So I just wonder if you might tell us a little bit about that journey. Sure. I think, Tim, thank you very much. And thank you, Rebecca, both for being inviting me to be part of this today. You know, I grew up in the coal industry, actually, was my expertise, not oil and gas. But, you know, my father were coal miners. My grandfathers were coal miners. In fact, both of my grandfather's deaths were complicated by black lung disease. They were both underground miners. And, and quite honestly, it was sort of the family tradition. I, I sort of ran away from God initially because I think I was called to be a pastor in the fourth grade. I ran, I call it my Jonah experience, running out to Arizona. And then it took me a while until I actually made it back to my home in Pennsylvania to answer that call to ministry. And I served at a local church for 18 years, which God blessed it tremendously. It grew, and um, it was just a wonderful experience. But then as I sensed my ministry winding down there, you know, I thought about going to another church, you know, maybe just rekindling. But one of my staff members said, Mitch, you're called to a national ministry. This is what I think you're supposed to be doing. And so I prayed about that, and, you know, and, and just nothing was coming up. But I know that I had two passions in my world. One was to tell the good news about Jesus Christ. I love being an evangelist. I love telling people that God loves them, no matter who they are and what they are. And secondly, I have a passion for the least of these, whether it's our own children or those in the developing world. And so I stood up on a Sunday morning having no idea what to do with my wife, 
very nervous about this step. And when I stood up and said, I'll be leaving this church in three months. I have no idea what God has in store for me. Three days later, I got asked to be invited for, I guess, for to send my resume to the Evangelical Environmental Network. And what made it so interesting is I really hadn't thought about that. I mean, I grew up the coal industry. I certainly have become more aware of carbon pollution and climate change in the past few years being a local church pastor. But what really I think God drew me to and called me to this ministry was that care to be an evangelist and that care to care for the least of these. Because I've come to recognize that, quite honestly, talking about creation care is one of the easiest ways to talk to young people about God. This has happened to me sometime, uh, at least, I don't know, probably close to 100 times over the past 15 years, before COVID, most of them, because of flying. But I'd be sitting um, on an airplane, and I'd be either opening my Bible up, or I'd have a book about the environment on it. And people would turn to me and say, well, what do you do? And i say, well, I'm an evangelical environmentalist. And the number one response, which happened almost all of those hundred times was, what in the H-E double hockey sticks are you talking about? And then I would open up my Bible and show them how this is God's creation. And I actually led, you know, dozens of people to a first-time relationship with, you know, Jesus Christ at 30,000 feet. And then I've also come to understand and learn that the pollution we generate from fossil fuels, both carbon pollution and other things, is one of the greatest impacts on human health, especially children's health worldwide. And so it's literally that God took my experience from the energy business, my experience of being a pastor, and brought those both together to my calling here at EEN to be the president uh, of directing that, and we've made quite a difference. I was asked to preach a sermon about my calling last year at a local church back in Pennsylvania, and it was helping people to understand their own calling. And, they, and part of what I talked about then was, you know, how did I know that this is what God had me in store? Well, I wasn't sure, but I trusted in God. But then about the second year I was at EEN, we had just been very successful of getting something done to t remove mercury from coal-fired power plants. And then the then vice president of the American Lung Association walked up to me after we got this successful and said, Mitch, you and your team just saved millions of children's of lives. And that's the moment I knew that God had me exactly in the right spot, that God was bringing fruit to my ministry, God was doing excellent things for what God had called me to do. And I think that's one of the things that talks about vocation so much is that God will make it work. If you're in the sweet spot God has in store for you, the fruits will be there. And so that's sort of my story of how I got into it and a little more beyond that. I so appreciate you sharing that. That's, that's really exciting to hear. Um, and, and I love that, especially because for many evangelicals that I've met, those two pieces don't necessarily sound like they would fit together, just like you said, the, and, and out in the culture, the expectation of what that is. And isn't that so like God to do something so creative and, and, and make reconcile two things that often people do not see aligned because actually they are in Christ. So I love that. Thank you so much. As you as you shared that, and as we think about vocation, one question I had was: um, often we think about personal vocation, like in the story you just told, but you also are talking about you lead an organization of, that has touched millions of people's lives, and so that that brings to my mind 
the role of a communal vocation. What, what, what would you say to us as we're, we're thinking as a community here at Roberts about vocation? Um, what would you have to say about the way personal vocation and communal vocation are connected or how they relate to each other? Well, I think the first thing, it starts with being the body of Christ. And Jim Cimbala said once that a message that I heard him deliver at the National Pastors Convention is that, you know, all churches have gifts and all churches are called as a community to do something. But that's determined by the gifts and graces from the people, the congregation, and they're tied together to do something. And then one of the most important parts that Jim said was that you have to trust in other congregations to do their ministry. And so especially in terms of creation care, I think it is, has to be very communal because it involves all of us. And as I told the students this morning in chapel, maybe this creation care isn't your primary calling, your emphasis calling. But all of us have a responsibility as disciples to have this communal sense of doing what's right, to becoming energy efficient, to reducing waste, to eating the right kind of things and sharing the excess food with others. And so it's all part of this is that we all have to come together because there is no doubt that caring about God's creation is a commandment to all of us. I mean, Genesis 2.15, right in the very beginning, says we're called to tend the, the garden. And for me, the garden is the entire earth. That's the way the Bible described it. It was the known world at those days. And so I think that it's, there's particular callings for individuals that might be more of it, but all of us have the commandment from God to do those things that will help his children, that will help build the kingdom of God. You know, oftentimes we forget, you know, and I said this this morning again in chapel, the second line of the Lord's Prayer. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that on earth part means that all of us who are part of the body of Christ are committed to caring for God's earth, committing for all of God's children, and then each of us will have ways to interact with that depending on our own gifts and graces and our own calling from God. I wonder if you might talk a little bit more, Mitch, about challenges you have faced in your career motivating people to care, maybe little victories you've had, uh, getting people turned around and really feeling like this is part of what I need to do, not just the next person. It's, it's very interesting, certainly, you know, because of the politics involved in climate change, which it shouldn't be. It's a biblical issue, not a policy issue. But people have been derided by that because people involved in all sorts of culture wars. And I can only think of what we do at EEN and what we found out is that we have to appeal to the basic values of people. And I'll tell you, I love telling stories. And this one, again, was repeated probably seven or eight times that I can think of. But one of the funniest ones was I was down in Montgomery, Alabama, doing an evening presentation about climate change and creation care. And there was probably maybe 100 people in the room. Some of them were college students, and they were the easy part. But then right before I was supposed to start talking, this... I will say mature woman came into the room, and she was, I love to describe it as a stereotypical Southern Baptist woman. Her hair was completely in pace, silver blonde, wearing all sorts of gold necklaces around her neck, and she was wearing this red skirt suit, and on the jacket of that was pinned at least 100 Trump buttons. So I went in there, and I talked about our primary message, which is the impacts, even here, right here in the United States, of pollution and children's health. I explained how that interconnection, that most of that pollution comes from the generation of the use combustion of fossil fuels, which is also the same place that climate change comes from. And so I went up to her after I was done, and the, the whole evening was over with, and I said, ma'am, I'm really surprised you're here. 
you know, um, obviously you support President Trump. And he said climate change is a hoax. And she said, nobody probably has ever talked to President Trump the way you did about climate change. And if you could get a visit to see him, I know you could change his mind because you changed mine. And I think the importance of that story is that how you connect with people is with what the values that are important to them. Everybody has either their own children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews. And when they become aware of what's happening in our world today because of the impacts of pollution, on their nobody escapes. Still 41% of America lives in areas of high pollution and we can make that better. And so connecting that with, you know, because everybody, I mean, I showed this morning a picture of my, our 16 month old grandson, who's, you know, our pride and joy. I mean, we love all eight of them, but he's the youngest, so he gets special treatment right now. But I think helping people to understand that, to connect with people's values. And I sort of have this five point way that I've talked about it is first connect with something values. And for evangelicals, second, it comes from scripture. You can sort of connect with their heart by reaching out to something they're very concerned about. But you have to show them how the scripture literally talks about this is God's world. It's not our world. We have the commandment to talk about it. The third thing is we have to get people involved in actions themselves. You know, whether it's planting a community garden or tree planting or energy efficiency or whatever. Uh, I know that you're from the CRC and 10 years ago or better, I was out at Dort College in Sioux Center, Iowa. And I was, I mean, it's great. When you go to Sioux Center, Iowa in the middle of February, the whole town shows up because there's nothing else to do except come and hear the traveling person come. And so I was talking there about climate change and I said that, you know, all of us are part of the solution. We all have to be engaged in it. And this man who farmed came up to me afterwards and, you know, and all the rhetoric I've heard of, all I've heard is about big government has to do this. And you never said that the individual could be involved. I said, yeah, government has to be involved. We have to have the right policy, but we all have to take individual responsibility. And he told me that he was going to start planting cover crops, which actually helps put carbon back into the ground and preserves the soil. And he was not going to till anymore and use no-till farming practices, which is great. And he still does it today. I, was out, I saw him a couple months ago. And it's been good for his farm. It's been good for making money. It's been good for creation. Which leads me to, to the next point is that, you know, we do have to have that policy. and want people to be engaged in policy and making those differences after they do something that, that they're part of the solution. But as I also told the students this morning, I'm a firm believer, and you cannot leave people without hope. We have Christ on our side. If we, the church, can't rise up and follow our risen Savior to care for his creation and care for his children, then we really need to think about our faith. Just as we have a Savior who rose from the dead, this earth can be recreated if we just get our act together, if we hear our calling and follow Jesus and be part of the solutions, be part of the work to do. I wonder uh, if you could share a little bit, bit about your work in Washington. I know you are in Washington, D.C. quite a bit. I mean, it's kind of unusual for someone who is an evangelical and then a person who's really concerned about the environment uh, to be there advocating to senators and members of Congress and even to the president, um, certainly to all kinds of people in the executive branch, the Environmental Protection Agency and so forth. And I just wonder um, if you might tell us a little bit about, you know, what a typical week in Washington, D.C. looks like for you. Sure, and, and right now maybe I can work on what we're working on right now is that the Farm Bill. 
Um, the Farm Bill is a bill that's sort of unique in Congress. It is reauthorized every five years, and then the funding continues to that five-year period. And a lot of the Farm Bill money goes to social programs these days, what we used to call food stamps and other things, which we're not engaged in that issue particularly. But we're engaged in the conservation title, which is helping farmers do a better job of conserving land. And so one of the things we've done, we actually went out and we've met with farmers all through the Midwest and in Pennsylvania, asking them, as evangelical Christians, how do you care for your land? What in the Farm Bill works? when the Farm Bill doesn't work. And we've literally taken all that information we've learned from them and have taken it back to their senators. In fact, one senator staff who came to one of our meetings, um, and I just won't, won't name the state so it's not, it's kept confidential, he wrote us a note saying, I have never been engaged in a conversation with farmers that there was this truthful, honest, and well thought out. They trusted you, that you were going to be their messenger to D.C., and what you were going to do. Because one of the things that I believe in, a lot of Americans are already doing some really great things. And most of the farmers are actually, have, many of them have started doing really practices that are going to help climate change and help make food better. And they need to be rewarded for that, and they need to be thanked for that. And so as these farm bills come out to help them do better conservation practices and to store more carbon in the ground, we want to help them do that because it impacts all of us. And so taking their advice and their wisdom, telling their stories that they're doing a good job, and now just helping them to do it better through the right kind of policy. So we meet with the staff of the Ag Committees, we meet with all the Senator's offices and all the House Members' office, just saying, look, here are evangelical farmers that are following God's command to care for his creation. They've come to understand the impacts of pollution we talked about, and they want to do a better job. Can we work together to find those solutions that won't be just about big government or throwing money at something, but actually empowering farmers using the right money and the right practices that do a better job of both feeding, feeding America, feeding the world, but doing it in a way that is much more in tune with God's creation? When you, when you have those conversations, um, what's the response from the folks to whom you offer that information, do you have a sense that they value that? I mean, you, get, you said that one story, but I just wonder, uh, most of us do not interact really directly with politicians, and there's such a lack of trust often these days. I wonder if you, since you're there, if you could speak to that just a little bit. Well, I think one of the things, EEN has developed a very good reputation in Washington, D.C. among policymakers, and I think the number one reason we do that is because we go there as Christians. We don't go there with saying, this is our agenda and this is what we demand to have happen. We care about the people. You know, and it ha and it's been redeveloping now. Before COVID, there were probably over 100 staff members who considered me their pastor. We offer to pray for everybody before we leave a meeting. We want them to know that we represent Jesus Christ. We don't go in there with a bully pulpit most times, although we have been prophetic a few times, I will say that. But we try not to be. And because we want to develop that sense of trust and goodness and carrying that message. And so most listen, some disagree. But I think even the people that disagree with us know the integrity that EEN has by being authentic Christians does something to the conversation. And certainly, we're seeing movement. I mean, last year, Senator Braun from Indiana, or two years ago, started the Climate Solutions Caucus, being, you know, it's a bipartisan caucus that a Republican is the co-chair of. We're seeing more and more senators across the aisle understand that climate change is real. Some of them don't, expect, don't yet, at least publicly, acknowledge 
the reality of how fast it's acting and how soon we have to act. And a perfect example of that, there was a budget committee hearing on the cost of the United States society on climate change. And it was organized by the new Democratic chair, that Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a big climate champion. But at that meeting, no Republican senator during the hearing questioned climate change. They did question what was more important, to do the national deficit first or to climate change first. But none of them denied it. And I can guarantee you that 15 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Progress is being made, but we have to get more people, especially people in the churches, because so many evangelicals you know, are conservative in their politics, too. I am. I'm a lifelong Republican. I, I value fiscal conservative, and I believe that, that we want to help give people a hand up, not a hand out. We want to make people have a sense of worthiness in their lives. But I help if we can raise our voice up and we can get rid of that working climate change isn't this lefty-righty issue, but a biblical issue. We can continue to make progress, and it will happen sooner, as it has to happen sooner, for us really to avoid the worst of the consequences. I'll ask a final question here. I just want to bring it back to your message in chapel this morning. You quoted Leviticus chapter 25, which is this wonderful jubilee chapter in Scripture. And I want to thank you for that because I think sometimes we become New Testament Christians, you know, and you're not, you weren't simply trained as a scientist. You're not simply an advocate for climate on the national level and for Christians, but you are also a pastor. And I just... Uh, want to ask you how can we think more about how the Old Testament speaks to uh, these issues? The Old Testament is a wonderful work of caring for God's creation from the very beginning. I mean, just think about it. God created what you know we know in the Bible as the Garden of Eden, and we know that it was created sustainable. God says it was. All the plants, the animals, humanity all had enough to eat. Nobody was poisoned from their food. There was enough for all. That was how the earth was created, to be a sustainable place where we wouldn't have to worry about food insecurity or water insecurity or, you know, in the, I know one of your speakers lately was on climate, um, I think, migration. Most people don't realize that around the world, one person is forced to move because of climate change every 1.7 seconds, mainly because of either war, violence, food or water insecurity. And so I think that this whole richness, in fact, the whole Bible if you look at the Pentateuch, is the first really sustainability manual in the book. It talks about animal husbandry and farm rotations and, of course, the seventh year leaving it fallow and the jubilee year leaving everything fallow. It's really a guide for how we're supposed to live our life in tune with creation. And I think that is what's so awesome about it is God made this sustainable place and just asked us to, to tend it to shepherd it. And, um, you know, I won't go into, we don't have time to talk about Radah and the meaning of dominion, but I'm going to talk about that at a presentation I'm going to do tonight. But I think that the richness of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is just so wonderful that, that they're together. There are covenant, there are book of scriptures. You know, you cannot throw the Old Testament away or the New Testament. They're the book. And I would say they're, I mean, I guess the one thing that I would say to most pastors is remember one thing is the Bible is a word of God. The word of God is Jesus Christ according to the Bible. First John says that you know the word was with God and the word was God. And so Jesus Christ is our ultimate word. And the Bible is sort of the flowing of the teachings that have been filtered through the wisdom of all of us and handed down through the eons. But it is so rich. I mean, we could talk about the Psalms talking about creation. We can talk about 
Leviticus. We can talk about Deuteronomy. Um, we can talk about even Jeremiah and all sorts of places. I mean, talk about one of the great stories of, of hope in the Bible. You know, Jeremiah in Israel is being surrounded by their enemies. And what does Jeremiah do? Does he, you know, throw in the towel? He goes and buys a vineyard. Send them ultimate hope that I'm going to plant right here roots for us to do something better. And I think that's the goal what the Old Testament tells us, that we can plant those roots to really build a new world. Because we think that when you deal with climate change, it's, a, it's basically a three for win all. You're addressing pollution. You're addressing climate change. But most importantly, you're creating a sustainable planet and the potential for family-sustaining jobs for all people. So it's not, let's throw in the towel and go away. We can build a brand new world more closer to heaven on earth as we move into these things and really get serious about caring for creation. Thanks so much, Mitch. We're just so glad you were here on our campus today. And uh, we just uh, pray blessings on your good work. Thanks again for listening to this episode of BT's Neighborhood, where we aim for simple but deep conversations about being a good neighbor here and now at Roberts Wesleyan and wherever our paths take us in the future.